Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman, and in this episode, I talk with Kevin Falez, author of Birds of Fire, Jazz, Rock, Funk, and the Creation of Fusion, a 2011 book published by Duke University Press. Miles Davis' 1970 release, Bitches Brew, ushered in a new, younger breed of musicians who were willing to cross the established genre lines of rock and jazz. This crossing, however, was met with derision, especially as seen by members of the jazz world. Jazz musicians like John McLaughlin, Tony Williams, and Herbie Hancock, who dared to play louder, heavier, and more electronic than the confines of jazz traditionally allowed, were scorned as sellouts, not only of their music, but also, for some, of their race. Folk and rock musicians like Joni Mitchell, who incorporated jazz elements into their music, were often ignored or seen as opportunists trying to up their critical cachet by playing music more sophisticated than what they had started their careers with. In Birds of Fire, Kevin Falez explores the roots of fusion music through detailed discussions of each of the just-mentioned artists, arguing that they made music in the broken middle that exists between established music genres as well as between established ideas about race and ethnicity in the United States. Along the way, he explores the theoretical idea of genre while providing a detailed historical discussion of the beginnings of fusion in jazz, rock, and funk. Kevin Falez is currently Assistant Professor of Music at University of California, Merced. Beginning January 1, 2012, he'll be Assistant Professor of Music at Columbia University in the city of New York. I reached him in San Francisco. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music. How are you doing? Great, great. <laughs> Thank you for being on our show. Well, thanks for having me. It's, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, please, why don't we start, Kevin? Why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about your biography and, and how you came to write this book? Okay. Well, I actually, you know, went to grad school to study um, digital cyber culture. Um, But as I was, you know, doing coursework and things, I was sort of losing interest. Um, And that has nothing to do with, you know, the area of digital cyber culture studies or anything. It was more, you know, sort of my lack of, or my waning interest. Um, And I had always been talking about music with my master's advisor. Um, and so she, finally one day she said, you know, you're always talking about this fusion music. Why don't you write about that? And I had been, and I sort of countered with, well, nobody's talking about that. And she goes, well, that's perfect. <laughs> right. and, um, so <clears throat> that was sort of the start of this sort of intellectual project, but I was also a musician. Um, and I was, had been playing previous to going back to school. I'd been playing in, uh, prog rock, sort of heavy metal prog rock sort of bands, as well as hard bop jazz bands. What what area of the country is this? San Francisco, California. So, you know, I was playing in bands uh, alongside like Metallica when they were still a club band here in San Francisco wow. and things. Um, but anyway, by the time I went back to school, I was sort of just playing acoustic straight ahead jazz. And I was sort of gotten caught up in all the uh, debates around Winter Marcellus at the time and sort of the so-called Young Lions who were in the neocon movement in jazz. So there was a real strong sort of anti-fusion sort of backlash, I guess you could call it. Uh, Or more sort of just privileging of acoustic straight-ahead jazz. What time period are we talking about? We're talking late 80s and early 90s. Uh Uh-huh. And so I begin, I be, as I was playing in these hard bop groups, I was still listening to, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra and 11th House and Return to Forever and things. Um, but all my sort of older jazz colleagues were, would always sort of wonder, like, why are you listening to that stuff? Um, <laughs> and so I had to, you know, sort of defend myself about, you know, um, <laughs> why I was even interested in that, that stuff. Um, and so there was, yeah, so I found myself in between 
sort of that that conversation where there was pretty much you know this in the mainstream jazz discourse there was a um, real focusing on acoustic jazz straight ahead sort of bebop and post-bop sort of oriented jazz and a complete dismissal fusion and and that's sort of when my project started was in that sort of atmosphere so i first started out thinking like so why did fusion get figured this way represented this way and characterized this way by jazz critics musicians fans um when it had been such a sort of powerful moment in the 70s uh and so as i was that that sort of was my first sort of an initial intellectual interest in in fusion uh uh-huh uh so uh, does this book come out of a, a dissertation or is it uh, outside of that? Oh, yeah. No, it's built on my master's thesis, which um, starts. I started the project way back as a master's student. And then it developed it in the dissertation and then became the book. What, what school is this? At San Francisco State, I was in the master's program. And right. then I was in the history of consciousness program at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. For my PhD. Great. Yeah. Uh and it was interesting too. I mean, if you read the er, the master's thesis, I mean, please don't, but <laughs> <laughs> you can really tell I was really caught up in the sort of Winton Marsalis and sort of battling with the sort of so-called neocon movement in jazz at the time. And um I have to say one thing grad school did for me was actually make me a little bit more um uh, forgiving, I guess, or <laughs> less combative, I guess. Uh, but yeah, my master's thesis is pretty polemical because I was really sort of caught up in that right. sort of defending fusion um, and its merits. So let's get into the book then. And mm-hmm. it seems like a general th- theme, a theoretical theme anyway, running through the book is is the idea of genre. Mm-hmm. And maybe not even just musical genre, you know, some of the, the life categories that we create. But we should stick specifically to music, I suppose. Um, tell tell me about genre. What is your idea about genre? Well, my thing is I, I think of genre as a sort of proxy or surrogate for, you know, um, identities of various kinds, primarily collective identities, but, you know, individuals and their interactions with music. And genre tends to stand in place of a lot of sort of like racial formation, you know, gender, um, all those sort of identity markers and identity formations get subsumed under genre, right? So people, when they say I'm a rock fan, are also saying a lot of other things about themselves, right? Or I'm a jazz fan. Um, And so I I was thinking of fusion as this, interesting and part of the anxiety around fusion was that it was this interesting meeting of these sort of racialized cultures right so you know jazz is this black art form rock is this white pop form and and i think that was caused some of the anxieties underlying anxieties and particularly with jazz critics around this sort of subconscious reading um you know the of of race underlying the genre mashup itself. So for me, that is one of the powerful things about genre is that it does stand in place of all these other sorts of uh, ways of connecting to music or cultural production in general. Um, And so when you start unpacking what does a genre, a particular genre, um, what is that? name you know or that title or that term jazz what is it standing in for in terms of those larger social categories then you can begin to think about okay so when those various cultures meet um what does that mean and i was sort of also interested as you say in these sort of larger social categories and how that meets in musical cultures um and then what do people how do people react to that or work with it or against it or what have you um and so yes uh, for me it was really interesting to think about part of the anxieties around fusion was this sort of subconscious or um 
underlying layer of race and gender and sexuality um, that was also coursing through the discourse, although all subsumed under genre and anxieties around genre purity. And so for me, all those jazz critics, their criticisms around fusion about, you know, lack of jazz chops or, you know, it doesn't swing. Those were all sort of a cover for the larger anxiety around, you know, ownership and authenticity of the musicians and the producers of the music themselves and those sort of questions. And they really get um, highlighted in when Wynton Marsalis shows up and starts dismissing fusion and things and really sort of reclaiming um, uh, a black imprimatur for, for jazz. Um, and that said, you know, I actually agree with some of what he has to say. Right. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, that's the important thing for genre with me is, is that all, all that certain aesthetics and things are also a way of talking about race without having to talk about race, which uh-huh. I sort of bring up in the book, you know, especially with the white jazz critics of the time um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, there was a real sort of push away from talking about race. Uh, especially as jazz want, you know, jazz musicians themselves and jazz critics sort of were looking for this uh, le- place in legitimate culture or high culture for jazz. Um, that, you know, sort of deracing it uh, would help their cause, right? That they could just have these sort of objective aesthetic criteria with which to champion jazz. Um, so there was a sort of uh, tamping down of the racial dynamics, at least from a large majority of the white critics uh, at the time. Black critics were different. I mean, they they sort of people like Amiri Baraka wanted to highlight sort of the racial dynamics, um, but they didn't definitely didn't have the same sort of influence, at least in sort of mainstream jazz discourse, that you know people that were writing in downbeat, for instance, had. So, uh, tell us about uh, fusion as a genre, please. What is fusion? Well, that, I guess, is my sort of big point, right, is that I never really coalesced into a genre. Um, It's, you know, part of that formation of genre for me is that it is this sort of discursive formation, right, that's built by record companies, fans, um, etc., and that fusion never really gets that because nobody really wants to claim fusion except for the fusion artists themselves. And they still found themselves thinking of themselves as either jazz musicians who were incorporating things from rock or funk, um, or they were rock musicians that were, you know, incorporating things from jazz. So even the musicians themselves were caught within the sort of, uh, you know, ideology around genre themselves. It was hard for them to say, well, we're this other new thing. And when, you know, nobody else would recognize, you know, there was no sort of visibility for being fusion as itself, if that makes sense. Right. It was always seen as a subset of jazz. And one reason I sort of wanted to get away from that, one is I don't think the music itself um, and the amount and range of people that you could call fusion sort of fit neatly under sort of a substyle of jazz. Um, but the other thing that I um, found actually more, I guess, problematic was uh, the idea that if you say that fusion is a substyle of jazz, that it, it sort of re center swing and bebop and and those sort of styles of jazz as central and fusion as this additive and i really wanted to um say that no fusion is i'm I'm with herbie hancock it really is this other sort of idiom it just never really coalesced in in a commercial sense especially into its own sort of genre so you would see you don't see a fusion section in a uh, you know old school record store. You would see jazz records, you know, and then you, and under the jazz recordings, you would see Mahavishnu Orchestra or something. Um, <clears throat> so that was my you know so fusion 
as this non-genre is this kind of very amorphous um, entity. And, and that's sort of what I wanted to get with, you know, my borrowing of Isabel Armstrong's idea of the broken middle. Um, it, you know, her idea that in the dialectic, right, the, you have the th thesis antithesis, but before you get the synthesis, there's this moment where those the thesis antithesis, right, are sort of being disassembled before they, and but before they become reassembled into this new term, there's this moment where it could go any way, right? Um, and so I thought of that as a very sort of productive way of thinking about fusion as being stuck in this sort of space of of not quite synthesizing and and not quite forming into something. Um, sort of substantive in sort of a conventional sense. And it was just sort of this amorphous um, term. I mean, even the term itself, you know, it was called fusion, jazz rock, uh, all kinds of words, you know, that it be fusion jazz. Um, and, and so again, yeah, it was, it's a very difficult thing to pin down, right? This sort of non-genre. And, and so that was part of my struggles with writing this was how to talk about it as a formation without really making it too solid. You know? So I, I hope that sort of answers the question. Wow. Absolutely. Um, so you're in your book, you, you focus on, on four specific musicians, mm -hmm. uh, but before we get to those four, uh, I think an important musician that is, that is threaded throughout your book is Miles Davis. So c can you discuss, before we get to these other four, Miles Davis' role in the creation of fusion. Sure. I, you know, it's funny. I actually didn't even want to talk about Miles. <laughs> in my dissertation, I sort of left him out the early drafts. I completely left him out. And finally, one of my um, committee members asked me, uh, how come you're not talking about Miles Davis? Man, he seems pretty important to this story. And everybody else sort of mentions him. Um, and I said, well, you know, I really wanted to, one, highlight the fact that Miles comes towards the end of a, a early developmental stage where it's actually these younger musicians like Gary Burton, Tony Williams, Larry Coryell, who actually start are starting to merge jazz and rock. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I really didn't want to make him the center of my story and, and sort of recenter him as the, in the way that sort of jazz criticism has sort of centered miles as the, the fusion, uh, origin story, but he is important. Um, and he's important because he, one, he brings a lot of visibility to fusion, right? He, he has this huge record, bitches brew in 1969, 1970. Um, and so he brings visibility to something, though, that I'm arguing was actually being formed for a number of years before. And he, through the influence of the younger musicians he was around, and to his credit, um, decides, hey, this is the way forward, and you know, um, picks up the, the fusion ball and runs with it. Um, so I think he is very important. I just wanted to get away one from you know the idea that miles was the origin and two i wanted to sort of get away from the the great men of history sort of paradigm um historiography so i wanted to sort of i guess downplay miles in some respects um in order to highlight other people and and sort of the in some ways that I saw him as an anomaly, especially in the early fusion days as this older musician that, um, uh, decides to, to become a fusion artist and that it was generally a young person's, uh, it was a generational shift. Um, so that was, that was my, my sort of take on miles. Um, again, I, I think he's incredibly important and I love personally, I love his fusion music myself and you know, his, Second quartet in the or quintet in the um, '60s is one of my favorite uh, small jazz on small ensemble jazz groups. So, you know, I really love his music, but I really wanted 
I had this sort of historiographical agenda, <laughs> I guess, um, where I didn't want to to keep him at the center of the fusion story. I wanted to sort of decenter that a bit. I, I I couldn't get away from the you know the idea though as I'm reading your book that three of the four musicians you're writing about played together in a band with Miles. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It seems like the you know the 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 what you're saying almost an origin of what's what your book is about. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean every jazz musician I've mentioned this to says, "Oh yeah, you mean Miles?" And then you know everybody that played in his band. <laughs> right afterwards so chicory would return to forever you know herbie hancock with headhunters etc cetera, etc cetera. and i was like well but no if i'm pushing that fusion story past 1970 i'm right. saying that in the late 60s you know gary burton and all those other people are already doing that um that miles is sort of not you know necessarily late to the game but he isn't the sort of central motivator of that that movement, if you will. Um, and again, I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad I was, you know, sort of nudged to put him back in the story because I do think he's important. Um, but I'm trying to say he's important in different ways than usually uh, have, are, are sort of portrayed. Um, that, you know, he, he lent visibility and credibility or some credibility. He doesn't really win credibility for fusion, but uh, he gets some. Right. And he gets actually critics to or jazz critics to actually listen <laughs> to the stuff and actually comment on it, even if they don't like it. Um, they have to deal with it. Yeah. He sort of forces that. Right. Yeah. OK, then let's let's uh, let's get to your your four artists. Let's we'll just go in order in your book. So talk to us, please, a bit about Tony Williams and his role mm. in fusion. Well, Tony is. Oh, for one, he's just one of my favorite drummers. I mean, these are all musicians I admire and listen to. And, um, and Tony, for me, one, he's an early fusion artist. Uh, his record, Emergency, comes out before Bitches Brew, right, a year before. And he really, I think, he and Gary Burton's group of that time period really... Um, merge jazz and rock in really interesting, creative, innovative ways. Uh, and really, I mean, it, I actually transcribed uh, Emergency for a project um, a drummer and I were doing, just to sort of do, we're going to do <laughs> this sort of acoustic version of Emergency. And as I was transcribing the music, I realized that the forms that they were doing were these pop music forms. And, and so what you get are sections of improvisation solo sections uh that are structural to this sort of pop form so you have singing and then a solo and then singing and solo but the solos are often not under the same harmonies that are going on for the melody of the singing you know they're completely different sorts of uh, uh sections if you will and so i began to um really sort of see how Williams had really incorporated at a very sort of structural level his love of rock and pop music and then using elements from jazz like you know, the improvisation, the soloing, um, and some of the other things I mentioned in the book like the unison lines you know, and things. But really I, I found, I, I find that music still I mean, if you play emergency, a lot of people, um, it's still sort of jarring. You know, it's much more jarring than even Bitches Brew because it's so kind of rock and rawish. It's almost sort of punky. And, and, and yet with all these sort of fantastic soloing that's going on. So he was a sort of an easy choice for me as far as sort of representing the sort of first early moment. Um, the other thing I'd like to say about the choices is that I really would have liked to have spent time talking more about other people as well, like Return to Forever, and, um, 11th House, and more obscure bands like uh, Fourth Way, which was one of my favorite fusion bands, or Catalyst, um, that are kind of obscure. Um, but it started kind of taking on the 
the flavor of, okay, here are all my case studies, right? here's my theory, and here's my case studies. And I sort of wanted to keep uh, the choices I made rather for sort of specific reasons. So Williams was basically that he's this early uh, fusion artist <clears throat> that really um, is a great example of that early sort of chaotic, uh, messy marriage of jazz and rock that his music and Miles's too um, uh, gets at this before it gets sort of more streamlined with, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra later, Weather Report, and groups like that. Um, but in that early period, it's really very sort of raucous, uh, chaotic, you know, very aggressively chaotic music um, that is much more sort of punk-flavored and, and sort of for me than, than the later fusion stuff. Is this what you mean then by... Uh, Tony Williams and the two worlds of popular and serious music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too. I think that the early, especially the early um, fusion artists are incorporating things that um, they're grabbing things from avant-garde, experimental, classical music or European art music. Uh, so yeah, you have Miles working with Tio Macero, who studied composition under Edgar Varese and. You know, Tony Williams that was studying all the time uh, throughout this whole period. He's, he's studying classical music and later on actually uh, debuts as a couple of string quartets and things. Um, that's past the period that I talk about. But, but yeah, I mean, they're really all over the map as far as what they're trying to, they're, what they're willing to just grab and, and sort of incorporate into their music. Um, which I still find very exciting about that early fusion stuff. It's just so kind of crazy, you know. I mean, <laughs> you have this hard rock psychedelic meets, you know, Frank Sinatra style vocals, you know, on, on top of pop song forms. And it's just sort of kind of wacky, you know. It's still, <laughs> it's still a very sort of wacky um, mashup. So at the at the time was. Was jazz considered serious music, or are they are these jazz critics? They're trying to make it into it. They're trying to make it be seen as a serious music. Yeah, well, jazz critics and jazz musicians have for some time been talking about jazz as serious music. I mean, as early as the twenties, right when they're talking with, about Duke Ellington's works get championed by Philip Larkin in England, who's this classical music critic, and um, or uh, these French critics, you know, Andre Hilder. Um, and who Hanase write about jazz as an art form. And this is as early as the 20s and 30s. But it doesn't really pick up steam until the late 50s and the 60s. So right before fusion, jazz is making some real sort of inroads towards legitimacy. Um, Martin Williams starts his jazz studies out of his apartment uh, in the 60s, I believe, maybe it's the late 50s. You know, that eventually evolves into the jazz studies program at Rutgers in New Jersey. Um, <clears throat> so you see that that sort of more explicit move to legitimate culture right before fusion, so in the 60s. And then with people like uh, all the avant-garde artists um, who are also sort of explicitly not only um, grabbing maybe ideas from European art music, but are also starting to get uh, academic positions, um, you know, get grants. You know, their their audience and the way they make money necessarily shifts from mass audiences to institutional support, and so that also sort of drives um, a certain segment of the jazz world into the academy. Right, particularly the avant-garde experimental people. So, I mean, you still have people like Anthony Braxton and things, you know, at uh, universities. Um, but fusion people aren't interested in that at all, right? I mean, they're interested in taking jazz back to the clubs and back to the streets. So that's another antagonism um, that fusion sort of unleashes, right? You know, just as jazz is sort of, really making serious inroads into legitimate culture, um, these f young fusion artists show up and say, oh, no, we, we're not interested in that at all. 
you, we we want to rock out. You know, <laughs> we don't want to. Uh, we're not looking for grants. You know, from the NEA, we're looking for you know mass popularity. Let Let's move on to artist number two then in your book, John McLaughlin. Can you uh, talk to talk to us about him, please? Yeah, well, he's interesting. I pick him. Well, you know, I mean, they're the obvious reasons that I have, you know, two African-American musicians, a British white musician and a Canadian female musician. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that sort of the crude. <laughs> but McLaughlin is also interesting in terms of his agenda, for me anyway, was uh, of spiritual, attaching his spiritual beliefs to his music. And it was super, really important for him at the time, and it still is, even though he's sort of broken away from street chimney uh, some long time ago. Uh, and he still follows a lot of those, you know, meditation practices and what have you. But I thought that was an interesting or a important point to make was how a lot of these early fusion artists, of which McLaughlin is only one, who really were seeing this fusion as more than a populist reach or anything. It was also a way of expressing their spiritual beliefs. Um, and, and, you know, he draws off a Coltrane and those sort of uh, Coltrane's um, sort of late 60s, right? Sort of Indian music, attachment of connections between Indian music and spirituality and his own jazz music. And McLaughlin was doing a similar thing. And I, I wanted to make that point because of the way fusion had been characterized as this totally commercial um, genre. Right? And I wanted to make the point that, no, a lot of these fusion musicians, for one, especially at this time period, had no expectation that their music was going to be commercially successful. You know, in Mahavishnu's debut album, that was a surprise to McLaughlin as, as much as anyone else, that it was as successful as it was. And and then, I, you know, I'm sort of interested in talking about how that, that sort of commercial success impacted um, his desire to sort of speak about spirituality and music. And, you know, that sort of conflict really sort of draw, drives a wedge in that early uh, first Mahavishnu Orchestra lineup. And so, you know, it wasn't obviously totally successful, but I really wanted to highlight that point that uh, McLaughlin and others like him really were interested in fusion um, for reasons other than, you know, making a lot of money, because uh, that wasn't the expectation and that was not their agenda at all. Talk about his guitar playing a little bit and how it it's somewhere in the broken middle of, of rock and jazz. Yeah, well, there he's an interesting figure in that sense, right? Because he plays, he's self-taught, he and he's always loved jazz, but he makes his living playing in studios in the early 60s. He plays a lot of rock. And so when you get to, especially Lifetime or Mahavishnu Orchestra, the first one, his playing sounds like rock but the 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 thinking behind what he does his lines you know the way he solos it's coming out of indian music um and jazz so the the rock part is really only sort of in his his sound itself is only found in sort of electric guitar the and the use of distortion um and those sort of things. It's not really in his thinking when he's soloing or he's composing. That is all drawn out of Indian music and jazz. So it's this interesting mix because he gets represented as this sort of rock guitarist who's playing jazz with Miles. And and actually, you know, if you sit there and analyze his music, it's he really is in between um, someone like Joe Pass, you know, and Jimi Hendrix, and he's sort of playing back and forth between both of those um, sort of ideals, I guess, on, or paradigms on either side. So a lot of his, the sound of his guitar sounds like rock, but if you listen to the lines and think about the lines that he's using and the kind of compositional strategies he's utilizing, well, those are not rock at all. So, 
And it's also the Mahavishnu, unlike, especially that early um, Mahavishnu, unlike maybe even later fusion, they're recording just like a jazz band, you know. They're getting in a room and they're all just sort of jamming together and it's not the sort of track-by-track, multi-track recording that you have in rock, say, or pop. Um, as a side note, uh, does Jimi Hendrix have a role in the creation of fusion? I I think so. I don't really talk about it much, but I think so. I, Especially if you think about his Nine of the Universe and it's sort of some of those posthumous recordings um, where he's really trying to get beyond the psychedelic rock that he had been sort of, he felt increasingly that he was being confined in. Um, and he's reaching out to jazz and, you know, there's rumors or you know, about him and Miles, you know, planning to, to collaborate and various stories like that. So I think he has some point, but I don't think he really did enough or live long enough right. to really see any sort of fuller realization of that. But I think he did inspire, um, in the same way that Coltrane inspires McLaughlin, he inspires McLaughlin uh, as well. Didn't they play together a little bit? Yeah, there's a supposedly a jam of theirs that if, yeah, I don't, it's on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty raw, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to uh, I think in in a number of ways, and Joni Mitchell in a number of ways is kind of the odd person out, mm-hmm. in in not only from gender, not only from race, but even you know from genre. Yes, yeah. So please talk about Joni Mitchell and fusion. Yeah, I was interested in her precisely because she was a a pop, you know, rock artist. The one thing I wanted to highlight was that it wasn't just, you know, jazz rock, right? And it was a fusion. And so you have people coming from the pop and rock side. I could have talked about a whole number of other folks, right? So there's Steely Dan. Um, there's Phil Collins when he was playing with a band called Brand X, um, but in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, uh, Bruford, you know, certain, uh, time periods for Santana, say, or, um, a number of other rock bands, Journey, their first, the first recordings by Journey are very fusion-y. Um, so I wanted to highlight that one, that there was this move from rock to jazz as well as from jazz to rock as part I suppose of Jeff Beck fits in there too, right? Yeah. I could have talked about Jeff Beck as well. Um, <clears throat> and almost did, but well, you started out with a quote from him anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that's very appropriate that ain't jazz ain't rock. Right. What is this thing? Uh, but you know, Joni also, I, I thought she was interesting in terms that she's a triple threat. Um, so I could have talked about other women, but I was really interested in her um, her own sort of fusion of being a musician, a painter, and a lyricist, and how all three of those fed into her uh, fusion, um, and how each of those sort of feed on the other part of her artistic output. Um, I also thought it was very interesting that she, unlike the jazz musicians, um, as she gets deeper and deeper into fusion, her record sales just drop, right? Because the pop audience doesn't follow her into into fusion. Um, <clears throat> so it's a very sort of similar move to the way j- mainstream jazz fans and musicians and critics looked at fusion. Um, so I thought it was very interesting uh, because one of my earlier questions along with wow, why is fusion being characterized this way, was, well, how come rock people aren't talking about fusion when there were so many rock people involved with it? Um, and I think part of it is that uh, a lot of rock critics, you know, especially at that time in the mid-70s, late, late 70s, uh, are looking to punk music, right? And they want their rock raw, sort of uncooked, right? And, and they're very... Um, and the, the very sort of moves that Joni is making were, are antithetical to that. So she's sort of out of step with the pop world, in a sense, at, the, at that point. Um, <clears throat> and I also thought it was, you know, of course, very interesting to, to think of a Canadian 
Um, and that relationship of Canada to America, I sort of, I don't talk about it too much, but I thought it was an interesting way of also talking about the broken middle of her sort of binational um, self-identification along with her own sort of going back and forth between pop, rock, jazz, uh, folk, um, and also her explicit sort of anti-feminist movement uh, <laughs> statements. You know, it was very interesting. She was really uh, trying to get to a universal sort of position. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone can be successful at that, but she that's her attempt, right? And I thought it was interesting for her to address gender in that way of, of really highlighting her gender, but in a way trying to obscure it at the same time. Hence all that uh, discussion of Art Nouveau, her her sort of black drag <laughs> character. What uh, what role, and this is a quote from her, that she's musically illiterate. What Do you think that had a, a positive effect on her, on her music? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that it does in the sense that she has very sort of irregular compositions, right? And very irregular melody lines. Um, and as I bring up in the book, I think where she talks about how her melodies, sometimes she's got to sort of make extra measures in the next verse. So these are very sort of like through composed pop songs. They're not strophic, right? They don't just repeat themselves with different lyrics. They actually have to change because their lyrics force a musical um, change. Um, so I, th I thought that was also very interesting is how her own music is so idiosyncratic um, that it sort of mirrors her own sort of stubborn idiosyncratic nature. Um, I, I also think that her, her illiteracy allowed her to experiment. Right? There was a willingness to just sort of go with her feeling about a you know particular song progression or harmonic progression or what have you um and i think it also allowed her maybe to talk with jazz musicians in a way that allowed them some freedom right where she didn't necessarily dictate to them um directly and sort of allowed things to grow and and sometimes the, she even recognizes how things got away from her because of that, you know, like the hissing of summer lawns comment, you know, that I let them do whatever they wanted and it turned into this jazz thing and all my fans hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Hendrix couldn't read music either. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I, and I believe McLaughlin initially couldn't read music. I, I think he's taught himself, but initially he couldn't. Uh, and that seems more of a, a rock kind of thing. And mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of rock musicians just say they sat down and played a record and, and somehow figured it out. Right. And it lends itself to that discourse around rock authenticity, right, is measured as that sort of almost sort of primitivist kind of attitude. right? Whereas jazz is very much, a, even if you're just sort of learning in the jazz tradition, it's and it's an oral tradition, there is a very much sort of a, matriculation process you have to go through almost to, to be considered a legitimate jazz musician. So, and, and, you know, the, especially post bebop jazz musicians have proudly announced, you know, how they study Stravinsky or whoever. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it was another way of talking about how the rock side of things uh, make fusion uh, this sort of interesting space between literacy, non-literacy, etc. That that must be part of the reason why the rock audience and critics either didn't notice or didn't have as much problem with rock musicians moving in this direction. Uh, rock was not as well defined of a genre. Yeah, or it's it's, it's a, allowed to be much more inclusive. Right, it's um, it has much more of sort of a universalist rhetoric, right? That you can almost add anything to rock, and it still sort of retains a rockness to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, whereas jazz, because of their concerns about being taken seriously and being a legitimate art form, they have to police the borders a bit more, right? Uh, or they feel they, they had to police it a bit more. So they're and much that, more concerned about genre purity on that side, yeah. And, and at that time, as you said, with punk, rock was moving in a direction that, you know, to be serious was 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 looked down upon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right, and that sort of ironic distance, right? That right. really gets sort of full fruition in the 90s. Um, yeah, it has its roots then. And also this sort of uh, idea that virtuosity um, was part of a sort of bourgeois yeah. theology, right? And um, and all this sort of concern about technical skills and everything. That was that's just sort of bourgeois, right? And, yes. And to be authentic and, and to, to, to be sort of anti-bourgeois uh, or counter-hegemonic, however you want to put it, uh, it almost requires right, that you play instruments you don't really know how to play um it's it's this sort of statement against that virtuosity <clears throat> and obviously yeah the fusion people were not interested in that they're they're all about showing off the virtuosity um it's a very different aesthetic um so, okay yeah, yeah. artist number four mm. herbie hancock please well i thought he was a great example of the tensions between commerce and art um, because he's so concerned with it throughout his whole career. Um, and I thought he would be a good one to sort of counter um, one of the main criticisms of fusion, especially post Bitches Brew and Intermounting Flame, is that people just did, did it to be successful, uh, to make money. And I wanted to show, one, that Kirby had a sort of corresponding spiritual angle as McLaughlin. And two, that he was always concerned about um, that issue of, I need to make a living, but I also need to be artistically true to myself. And he's extremely explicit about that, right? So he's... And he tries all sorts of different kinds of ways of, of doing it. You know, he he's a session player for CTI. You know, he's on all those recordings. He's writes commercials. You know, a lot of his most well-known tunes had their starts as um, songs for commercials. And and yet, when they become like Maiden Voyage, jazz critics see that song you know as a, a jazz composition and you know it's valorized etc but you know if you had mentioned well that's actually you know an ad music for an ad um it's you know it's this total imbrication of commercial and jazz right at the same level that there's attacking fusion but i thought that was an interesting um or he would make a, a good example of talking about that interesting discussion around fusion, which uh, you know really boiled down to the, these jazz guys are cynically looking for a bigger payday, and I think Herbie is is very good at articulating how the concern about economics does not necessarily trump aesthetic concerns or you know concerns about wanting to reach an audience. Um, have also play into while well, I also need to perform music and create music that I enjoy or, or I find valuable. And, and it's sort of like he says at one point, I think I quote him where he says, um, he gets sort of testy, it seems. And someone asks him about that very thing, about this tension between e economics and aesthetics. And he says, well, I'm not a chauffeur. Right? Audiences don't tell me where to go. I'm I'm the driver. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I, I wanted also to highlight the agency of the musician themselves in combating all this discursive um, sort of criticism. Yeah? So I, I thought he was a good example. Plus, he is also the one that comes out of uh, sort of a more funk orientation. Um, everyone else had more of a rock 
orientation. So I really wanted to think through that aspect as well that you know rock critics and rock discourse sort of frames or ignores fusion in one way and so how does it happen in funk and he he of the four anyway seems to be the most explicit about now i'm going to make a funk record going from genre to genre saying this is (laughs) the kind of uh, i'm going to try this genre now and see what it does yeah 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 he's he's I think he's also being somewhat um, defensive about the fusion part of it, um, and the criticisms like, "Oh, you don't, you're not really playing jazz, and you're not really playing funk," right? Like uh, Lester Bowie's scathing critique right. <laughs> of him, um, and I think he it, that is that's his move is to say, "Oh no, I'm." I'm just making a funk record. This is a funk record. This other one is a jazz record. And and to try to say that these, as you say, you know, I'm going from this genre now, and now I'm doing this genre, and now I'm doing this genre, instead of arguing, continuing to argue, no, this is all my music. And I see this as all sort of one genre, if you will, uh, or one continuum. Um, <clears throat> but I think that was... Uh, partially a defensive move on his his end to to say no 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 this is a funk record. I think he also wanted to keep his um, jazz bona fides, you know, sort of <laughs> uh, intact. Um, so instead of saying no oh, no this is a jazz record that has a lot of funk elements, uh, I think he he probably found it like well if I want to keep getting these straight ahead jazz gigs maybe I should. Um, demarcate my my creative output a little bit, so people don't mistake um, what I'm doing. Right? Great. Um, so those are the four artists. Uh, as a kind of wrap up, Kevin, mm-hmm. uh, where is fusion here in the 21st century? Does it does it still exist as a genre? Hmm. In a sense of an underground of people, people like Alan Holdsworth, maybe the most visible. Um, I mean, there's certainly Pat Metheny, right, who's yes. an extremely successful uh, fusion artist, I would say. Um, uh, and there's smooth jazz, right, that becomes sort of one, one route um, out of sort of the non genre fusion. Uh, smooth jazz, uh, and in fact, a lot of people sort of think of smooth jazz and fusion as the same thing. Um, but I would say that no, smooth jazz was sort of a pop version of uh, of fusion that arises later um, because of uh, the record companies realizing, hey, you know, instrumental music might be able to sell. Um, because early Ma Vishnu Orchestra certainly isn't smooth. <laughs> right. <laughs> or Lifetime or Bitches Brew, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I, so smooth jazz is one route um, that's still around. I think the ja- jam band phenomenon come, uh-huh. it, it comes out of fusion or some of the same ideas as fusion. You know, there's a lot of improv. There's a lot of uh, messing around with genre. Um, and genre mashups in the jam band scene. Um, I think world music is another one that, especially if you think of groups like Weather Report and Oregon and Fourth Way, um, who are all sort of proto world bands, um, and even you know Shakti, of course. And, and so, world music is another sort of formation that we can see now that you can say at least has maybe some of its roots in fusion. Um, new age music was another one. I don't, I don't even know if there's new age music around anymore, except, <laughs> except for maybe Wyndham Hill, <laughs> right? but, but right, Wyndham Hill, private music. There was a number of labels at the time, the late seventies, early eighties, uh, Steve Halpern's music. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but um, he, he has sort of music therapy recordings. Uh-huh. And so that sort of spiritual connection, right, with music sort of comes out. And I, I, I would argue that New Age, some of New Age's roots 
are also in that side of fusion. Um, I'd say another legacy of fusion is, or the fact that jazz actually is a little bit more open. So you have somebody like Hiromi, who is a pianist, but also, you know, she places this range from stride piano all the way through, you know, electric, funky, sort of avant-garde stuff. So there's more room, it seems, in the, the jazz world for artists like that now than there were previously. So that's, that's another legacy. Um, and then now, just now, I mean, I think the book might be coming out at a good time because right now there's sort of this nostalgia for the 70s bands anyway, and you see a lot of the baby boomers at the Return to Forever reunion tour <laughs> concerts. Um, John McLaughlin's out there with Fourth Dimension and Five Piece Band, and they're doing um, music that sounds very much like uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Um, so you have some of those those things happening. But if you're in ter terms of talking about that sort of more sort of jazz rocky, jazz funky kind of fusion, you know, groups like Uncle Mo's Space Ranch, um, uh, all those kind of bands are very sort of under, it's an underground scene, uh, even though it's now global and, and everything, but it's very much under the radar of, you know, magazines like Downbeat or Rolling Stone. And it's very much under the radar <laughs> of most musical discussions. Um, but there are people out there, you know, Scott Henderson with Tribal Tech. Uh, there are a number of bands that are still playing a very sort of intensely technical, um, raucous sort of fusion. Um, and also incorporating things from avant-garde music still. So there are that. There, and there's sort of this prog rock um, legacy as well that you can hear um, but that's maybe something I don't talk about as much and I, I, I would look forward to somebody else doing that actually at some point <laughs> to sort of draw so what are you up to these days Kevin are you are you writing more or yeah I'm actually been on another entirely different kind of project is a little bit more ethnographic it's I'm looking at Hawaiian slacky guitar or kihualu um, I'm looking at practitioners, Hawaiian and non-Hawaiian practitioners in Hawaii, California, and Japan, and sort of tracing out how Hawaiian, Hawaiian-ness is articulated in that guitar tradition and how that articulation changes as non-Hawaiians begin performing it, and then even Hawaiians that are not in Hawaii and non-Hawaiians outside of Hawaii play it, uh, and what it means to them and how how Hawaiian identity either informs their work or doesn't, or, you know, in what way. Um, so that's one project. And then the other project is I'm borrowing from Phil Deloria's um, Indians in Unexpected Places to think about black musicians in unexpected places or unexpected genres. So I'm writing about, currently I'm just writing now an article about uh, Enka, Japanese Enka singer named Jero who is uh, African-American, African-Japanese-American. He's phenotypically black, but, uh, you know, he's part Japanese, and he goes to Japan in early 2003 and, and sort of wows them by singing this old-style Japanese pop style that young people don't listen to anymore. And he's a young guy. He's like 20-something. I, I forget exactly. Um, and, you know, black heavy metal bands, um, uh, black prog rock musicians, so people like that. Like uh -huh. again, people who are sort of who are troubling that connection I was talking about earlier between genre and all the things it masks around identity, and that they sort of rub against that. Right. Um, well, thanks, Kevin. I uh, it may or may not have come out through the interview, but I I'm really. Uh, coming through this from a rock perspective. So I, I learned quite a bit from your book. Um, great. And uh, we appreciate you. I appreciate you being on the show. And uh, good luck with your with your future books. We'll look for them. All right. Thank you. Thank you. It was great uh, talking with you as well. And I really thank you again for inviting me to talk. 
You've been listening to an interview with Kevin Falez, author of Birds of Fire, Jazz, Rock, Funk, and the Creation of Fusion, a 2011 publication on Duke University Press. Please check new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thank you for listening.